ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai, Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh, Norate Hilot, 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. Uh, we are in the book of Deuteronomy this Shabbat, and our Shabbat is called Shabbat Nitzavim. It's one of the final portions in the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of my very favorite portions of the Torah, and I'll list some of those reasons for you in just a little bit. Um, and the Haftor portion that goes with this one is our final Haftor portion of what we call the Consolations, uh, the Haftors of Consolation, I should say. Uh, our portion begins in Deuteronomy in chapter 29 at verse 10, where, and it uses this term. It says, you stand today, all of you, uh, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God um, as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is reviewing that God, that Israel has a covenant with God. And he enlists all these people that are part of that covenant. By the way, I want you to take note. He mentions aliens that are in the camp. He mentions Gentiles. That it wasn't just, this covenant wasn't just made with the native born of Jacob. It was made with all that were associated with believing in the God of Israel that were part of the exodus out of Egypt. 
Now, the meaning of our portion, Nitzavim, comes from the word standing. And what Moses is going to do here is, even though he's starting off by addressing everybody that's standing there today about the covenant, he then goes through and shifts his conversation from those that are standing there to another group. And he, when he makes the shift, he said, I'm not only speaking to those that are standing here today. I'm speaking to those that are not standing here today. So the question you would ask, well, Moses, who are you now talking to? Who, who is it? And he goes on to explain that he's talking to an audience that will be at the end of the ages. He's talking to a generation that's going to see Israel, that generation then, cross over the Jordan, go into the land, disobey the Lord, not follow the instructions of Moses, not keep the commandments, not keep the covenant, and that they eventually, God will disperse them and scatter them into all the nations of the world. And so he begins to talk to the generation at the end that has seen all of that and knows that Israel and all of the people of, of Israel have been scattered in all the nations, and he begins to speak of something wonderful that's going to take place in the, in the days of the last generation. And if you will, go with me to chapter 30, where he specifically is giving the message to them, and it says, So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So you have to be the people that are banished into the various nations. That's who he's talking to. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Before we go any further, you need to look at that word return. We're going to come back here in just a moment because we're going to talk about that word, and that's a very important word now coming out to the conclusion of the year as we go into the fall holidays. Continuing at verse 3, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul uh, in order that you may live. So let me summarize what, what essentially Moses has given us. There's this last generation, and this generation is going to be part of this big, huge gathering up thing. If you'll recall, the final feast in our Feast of the Lord is the Feast of Ingathering, Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. And the themes of that feast that we are consistent with what this prophecy is talking about. Part of the explanation is you're going to get gathered up. And by the way, you're going to get gathered up and you're going to dwell 
in Sukkah, just like your ancestors did when they came out of Egypt. When we came out of Egypt, we dwelt in tents and huts, and we were in this very temporary kind of housing situation as we journeyed to the promised land. Apparently, that's what's going to happen to the last generation. We're going to come from all the different nations at the same time. God's going to pull us out of all the different nations. We're on a journey to the promised land, and for a period of time, the Great Tribulation, we're going to be dwelling in huts and tents, temporary dwelling places, while we make that journey to the point. When the Messiah returns, that's when we will all make our way uh, there to the land to be with him uh, when he gathers all the saints at that point. Now, this is, uh, it, it's absolutely fascinating to me, and I think this is the part of the reason why I mentioned to people I think I like this portion more than some of the others. I have uh, explained to people, having taught the Torah now for many years, that the, the Torah really is the story of one generation. It's really a story about that generation that came out of Egypt. And the book of Genesis simply explained where did that generation come from. You know, where did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come from? And how, these are the descendants of him. And how did they end up in Egypt to begin with? Uh, but the rest of the book is all about the journey of them coming out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land and God giving them the Torah, his laws, his covenants, uh, so they can be established as a nation in the world. Uh, but here at the end... Moses shifts gears, and he's not talking to that generation anymore. He's talking to us. Now, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of believers, they look back at the Torah and the Old Testament, they say, well, that's not really about me. It's really about those people. It's about the Jews. It's about all those other folks. Little do they know. <laughs> no, all that previous instruction was for the benefit of somebody at the end, us. The Torah is intended for us because what is getting ready to happen is far greater than what God did when he brought Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. There's going to be even something far greater that will take place. Not only will it be our salvation and deliverance, it'll be the revealing of the Messiah when he comes back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It will all be a part of that. Everything is building to that moment. And this is the Torah portion giving the instruction. What follows in the Torah, other than explaining um, uh, about how Moses turned um, things over to Joshua, Moses is giving his final word uh, to anybody listening to the Torah. That generation, us, Anybody who's listening to the Torah, this is Moses' final instruction, final things that he's saying to us. And one of the most emphatic things that he's going to give to us is about this word return. And return is, uh, in fact, in the next week's portion, this is when we're going to be dealing with this, it has to do with shuva. It has to do with, and shuva is the shortened version of tashuva. Teshuva is repentance, but shuva means return. And uh, the emphasis on what is going to be following here, Moses is saying, you need to repent. You need 
to return because that's what the agenda is going to be. You're going to be gathered up to return to the Lord and return to the land. Now, I will tell you, since I've been teaching this for many years, and I've stared out into the faces of many in the audience who've heard me teach on this, and quite honestly, a lot of the faces looking back at me, I'm kind of wondering what's going on in their head, because a lot of them, they, they seem to have two, two types of response. One is what they call the deer in the headlights, uh, like suddenly it grips them as to what these messages are about, and it's going to apply to them, and they need to figure out what's going on here, and they need to learn quickly. And then the other one is this, what I call a blank stare. You know, I share this information, and even though it's, it's clear it's been directed to them and so forth, it's like it doesn't phase them. It, it doesn't seem to penetrate their thinking or their heart with regard to this. They just, it's not like they're even taking in stride. They just don't, they're so ap- uh, apathetic about this that it just nothing moves them. And that, that last group, that apathetic group, it reminds me of the bulk of the nation of Israel at this time. Moses was talking to the nation of Israel. They, this is the generation that had left Egypt. Their parents had died in the wilderness in that 40 years. And now they're the generation getting ready to go in the promised land. And how motivated are they, how stimulated are, how excited are they about going into the promised land and, and, and receiving the promised land? You know, to, to, to a certain extent, the evidence is very clear. They weren't, they weren't all that committed because Moses is, is initiating here and he's saying, look, I know you're going to cross over the Jordan and you're going to forget me and forget everything I told you. It's a little bit like somebody going up to a mirror, seeing the image of themselves, and then walking away and forgetting what they look like. It's like they've heard the instruction of Moses in the Torah, they step away from it, and suddenly they forget about it. And that the people that have the blank stare, you know, that I made mention to, they're famous for doing that. They see and hear what the Scripture says. At the moment, they take it in. They walk away, and it's like they never heard it before. It's like it has no impact on them whatsoever. And I am seriously uh, wondering exactly what, what's the group of people going to be like that goes on the greater exodus? I think there's a possibility the vast majority of believers simply are not going to escape. They're simply not going to go. They're just going to stick around and wait for all of these things to come and steamroll them as to what's going to be happening at the end of the world. Now, some are going to be active taking up the sword and defending themselves. We all know what the destiny of that is. He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. But then there's this other group that's just going to be taken captive. They wouldn't escape. They don't take up the sword. They just sit there and pretend like it's not happening and it's not going to happen to them. And it happens. And they're like stunned that it happened. Um, to me, I, I, I can't fathom in my thinking how, how that works. But that's a people that have small souls. Uh, 
and are poor in spirit. Those are people that cannot get enthusiastic about God. Even though they're enjoying life, they don't love life that much. It's like blasé, you know, it's like whatever, you know, and um, I don't think the Lord gets excited about those people. I think the Lord looks down and says, that's it, that, that's all you got. If you remember in the message to the seven churches, you know, he talks about this one group that's lukewarm. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're in the middle there. You're neither hot nor cold. He says, it, he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Literally, it means I will vomit you out. Wow, I do not think I want to be part of God's vomit. That's just disgusting. And, um, and this message that we have in the store portion is Moses trying to stimulate the last generation. Get with the program, guys. You're part of this big thing we got going on here of leaving Egypt, and you're part of what's going to be in the kingdom coming. And get get with the program here. Get with the, uh, the oath and return to the Lord. You know, walk away from the earth. Walk away from your Egypt and, and, and get ready to go on this journey. Now, with that said, let me shift gears and take you over to the Hoftor portion. And as if you'll recall, we have been um, uh, going through what are called the Hoftors of Constellation. Let me just very briefly review for them. For the last seven Shabbats, we've had this incredible sermon being given to us uh, from passages from Isaiah, beginning first with Isaiah 40, verse 1, where it says, Comfort, O comfort my people. And then Isaiah 49, 14 said, the Lord has forsaken me. You know, that's the cry of Israel, feeling like they've been abandoned into the nations. And uh, Isaiah 54, 11 uh, is the next one, which said, um, oh, afflicted one and storm tossed. In other words, he's talking to Israel, scattered in the nations. He says, I know that you've been in trauma. I know you've had great difficulty, but I'm the one that's going to bring you back. And then, of course, Isaiah 51, 12, which is the, uh, with Shoftim, that's the middle one, says, I, the Lord, am the one who comforts you. And then, um, uh, then the next one is from Isaiah 54, verse 1, you should sing and dance and fear not. You know, again, this, I will bring you back, I will comfort you. You should be rejoicing. And then uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1, the one from last week with Gitavo, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Something wonderful is got to happen to you. And that, of course, is the prophecy that specifically talks about the darkness that comes in the great tribulation in the final days of the indignation. But that for those who are believers, they have light that others don't have. And now we're at the final portion and we are in Isaiah 61, beginning of verse 10. Let me read those for you. This is the final portion of the Hoftors of Consolation. It says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself with a uh, with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all of the nations. Now that obviously is a passage of Scripture that is addressing the second coming of the Messiah. That's when we are preparing ourselves to be uh, the, bride, the, the bride to the bridegroom who's coming. We're getting ready to get married to the Lord, the wedding of the Lamb, and it's the final part that comes at the end of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation ends, and then we are joined with the Messiah. He brings us all back, and we're in the Promised Land with him, and and uh, we're there uh, with the Lord. It's good. It's it's a messianic kingdom. It's a wonderful time. And that's what this final verse is talking about. Now, um, there's another fascinating part to this passage that I want you to take note of. I don't know if you recall, recount the story, but there's a very specific story about how Yeshua uh, went back to Nazareth after he had started his ministry. And he went to the synagogue. He went to where the fellowship was taking place. And in those days, this is one of the evidences, they used to do exactly what we're doing. They would have a Sabbath with the Torah portion, and then they would have the Haft Torah portion that went with the corresponding Sabbath. As you know, Isaiah 61 is the final seventh Haft Torah of consolation. It's about the subject of the coming of the Messiah and taking his bride, establishing his kingdom. And it, it's about Moses in Nitzavim, saying, I'm not talking to the people standing here. To, I'm talking to that generation that's going to see all these things and see God gather them back. In other words, the, the future things of the generation of Israel. And this passage of Scripture, the story is recounted that when Yeshua went back, that he was asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah that Sabbath. And they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he read from chapter 61. He was reading the Haftorah portion of this Sabbath. Now, here we are in the middle of, of toward the, uh, the end of summer, before the fall holidays. And that was the time frame that Yeshua did this at, at his, uh, it's a clue as to when was it that this took place. It was just before the fall holidays. In fact, Nitzavim is the Shabbat just prior to Rosh Hashanah. And so we believe that it was just before Rosh Hashanah and the fall holidays, he was called upon to read this portion. Let me read to you the portion that he read that cited for us in the Gospels. It's Isaiah chapter 61, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberties to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And at that moment, Yeshua stopped reading. He rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down, 
And then he said to the audience, these words have been fulfilled within your hearing. He was announcing through the scripture that he's the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I've come here to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come here to heal. I've come here to do all these different things, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to be released from, from sin, to no longer have the death penalty uh, put upon you because of your own sins and transgressions. And as you recall from that event, the, the audience was a little bit shocked. In fact, uh, within the audience, it's reported, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Is, isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter? What, what, what do you mean he's saying he's the anointed one, that he's the Messiah? How, how outrageous can that possibly be for him to be saying that? And apparently, according to the gospel account, they took him, and they were going to take him out the edge of a, of a, high, a, a cliff, a, and they were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him. And somehow he was able to be delivered from that, escaped uh, from it. And one of the things was that was when his own hometown, his own family, so to speak, the, his neighbors, rejected him. He had come from the purposes of his father. He announced who he was to them, and they knew that there was supposed to be a Messiah coming, but they weren't prepared to accept him to be the Messiah, so they wanted to kill him. They wanted to reject him. And that's the, in, in a nutshell, is kind of a classic story of what happened to the Messiah with regard to all of Israel. He was raised up amongst his countrymen, and yet his countrymen, looking for the Messiah, rejected him. Uh, we did the exact opposite of, of what we're supposed to do. By the way, this concept of um, someone being raised up in your midst and you thinking you know who they are and then God wants to use them for a specific purpose, and when they announce what that purpose is that God has dispatched them for, the, the natural tendency is to reject that person. The natural tendency is to not believe it can't believe that God would use that person for it. I have, um, <laughs> in my own personal way, um, I'll share just a little anecdotal story about myself. You know, I, I grew up in a small town in America, and uh, uh, my classmates, and so they're all my friends, you know, and I know them well, they know me. And as the years have emerged in the course of our lives, and I got into the ministry and became somewhat of a public figure, publicly teaching and, and so forth, uh, they're all Christians back there. They're all believers. And whenever the uh, subject comes up about who I am and what I do in the ministry-wise, they are speechless. They don't want to bring that subject up whatsoever. They, are, they just can't come to terms with that little kid that used to be in their class, Monty Judah, one of the smallest little kids in the class, one of the goofball kids in the class, God has raised up and is using him in a very bold and dramatic fashion publicly to, to minister to the world. And I'm not trying to make a big deal about myself. I'm trying to explain 
that regardless of what I had done, my classmates and the people that are back in my hometown can't process that. They can't deal with that. Uh, They're like Israel. They can't deal with how the Messiah was raised up amongst them, even though it was prophesied to be that way, even though it is. And we have to be careful about how we react to when God wants to send someone to us to speak a word to us or to encourage us or teach us through a different person. Uh, And it seems it's better for you if you didn't know the person beforehand, that you're more receptive to hear what they have to say. And um, thank goodness, uh, in my earlier days, a lot of people didn't know me. That was the reason why I had some major success. <laughs> Quite honestly, if you'd have known me beforehand, you'd, you'd understand why they have a problem with uh, Monty. The Lord used Monty for this, um, you know, and... Uh, uh, although Yeshua didn't have a bad reputation, but he had a reputation of being the son of the carpenter. And so they view him from that standpoint. The, um, the, this, let me just summarize here um, as we complete this. These Hoftors of Consolation, since we're going through the Hoftor series this year, is one of the most powerful messages in all the Bible. It's, it's the oldest known sermon in all of the Scripture. And there's evidence that it was in Yeshua's day. This sermon was in Yeshua's day. To this day, it's still being done and still being taught. And there's a great prophetic fulfillment. Israel thinks they've been rejected of God. They've not been rejected. God wants to comfort them. He wants to gather them up. He wants to bring them back. And that's exactly what God is intending to do. And he's going to bring us back, and we're going to get married to the Messiah. And we're going to live in the Messianic kingdom. And it's going to be wonderful and be good. And so we are to be called to return and leave Egypt and get ready to go to the promised land. That's our portion for this week as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah and the fall holidays. Next week, we'll have the portion that is between uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 12. Hold your finger at verse 14, where our Brett Hodeshaw portion will begin for this week. As you open the Scripture, uh, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to dig into your Word. Father, I thank you for this week. Father, I thank you for whatever might be going on uh, in the lives of the brethren. And Father, I pray that uh, you would just speak to us, minister to us, here through your Word, uh, Father God. Uh, this teaching to be encouraging to the people. And Father, what a blessing and honor that it is uh, to do this teaching right now. So Father, I pray that you would just speak through me, and may it be your words that are spoken and not mine. And Father, we just thank you for your Sabbath and for this time of rest. We thank you for all of these blessings. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Nitzavim. Typically is a double portion with next week's portion, Vayelech. It's actually a very short uh, portion uh, in our Bibles. 
which means uh, nitzavim means standing, comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning at verse 10. And it is um, a portion that is all about confirming the covenant with the children of Israel. So whenever we dig in into the New Testament, we're trying to draw out some of those same principles, those same parallels. The reason for the covenant that was made with the children of Israel is so that the covenant might become a part of their lives, a part of the relationship that they have with God. Um, This Torah portion is famous for saying that um, Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, was not just making covenant with them, but he was making covenant with all people who were not there, not present at that time there on the east side of the Jordan River. He was making covenant with all of the descendants after them, the descendants of the ancients, and that would be us, and that we enter into that same covenant with our Creator and with our Heavenly Father. One of the things about God writing His covenant upon our hearts is so that it stays with us all the time, that it never leaves us, it never departs from us. No matter what goes on in the course of life, the covenant is supposed to remain as the connection that we have with our Creator, with His commandments, with his instructions, that even if we don't have a Bible right in front of us, that we still are committed to walk in faith, believing in him. But the problem is, us being human and fallible, is that sometimes circumstances around us actually cause us to fail, cause us to depart from the commandments of the Lord, cause us to forsake the Lord. And in fact, here toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the uh, forsaking of the Lord and his commandments and his covenant is prophesied of the children of Israel, that they were going to break the covenant. They were going to um, break, the command, break the covenant. They were going to get kicked out of the land, the promised land that God is giving to them. He hasn't even given them the promised land yet when these words are being said, all at the same time saying, no, you're going to break the covenant that I'm making with you. You're going to rebel and you're going to do these things. And all the people that would hear and receive that just be like, uh, okay. You know, you, you would want to commit to the Lord that you wouldn't be a people that would ignore the commandments and break the covenant. But sure enough, we all do. We all fail to keep the covenant and keep the commandments of God. Circumstances around us change. Sometimes even the most devout of us can fall away from the faith when certain circumstances change. I, I know of a, a leader in ministry who was once a, a great leader, great teacher, um, but certain circumstances in the course of their life caused them to just fail in their spirit, to just not have the same motivation, the same teaching that they that they did to uh, lead a congregation. They just didn't have, have the energy and it just wasn't in them anymore. When they were once this great leader, circumstances, whether it's family situations, or a split in the congregation, an elder that, you know, stabbed somebody in the back or betrayed them or, um, you know, that sort of just eats your lunch sometimes. And even the strongest of believers fall away. Now, it's one thing to fall away. It's another thing to then grow angry and to grow bitter. And in fact, that's the main thing that I want to bring out uh, here in this very first uh, uh, passage of Scripture that we're going to dig into for this portion is the idea of bitterness and a root of bitterness. It says back in our Torah portion in Deuteronomy chapter 29 uh, that it says that may there not be among you 
one that, a, that would spring up a root of bitterness. May these things not happen. That when you go and you break the commandments and you go after other gods or you serve, uh, you disobey the commandments of God, what ends up happening is that you actually grow embittered toward the things of God. The more that you break the, of the commandments, the more that you neglect of the covenant that you have with God, the more you grow bitter towards those things. You feel like you were lied to or certain circumstances change. And that's one of the things that we need to make sure that we don't do is to have that bitterness well up inside of us. We all know somebody who is bitter. We all know somebody who has let bitterness take root in their life to where they can't be consoled They have no joy. They have no peace. They have no love in their life. They don't have the spirit of God inside of them. Instead, they have this spirit of bitterness, and it just infests everything that they do. And when you step away from the Lord and his covenant, that's what can spring up. So the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12 at verse 14. He says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, and lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. See, that's exactly what happens when bitterness springs up. Many become defiled by it. Anybody who has that bitterness inside of them. It's not just them that sits there and sulks and suffers with the bitterness that they have. But they want to make other people feel the same thing that they do. They want to spread it. Like, just like a root of a certain type of weed or plant or whatever, the root continues to grow and it sprouts up new weeds wherever it is. That's why when you go to kill weeds in a garden or in your lawn or something like that, you have to go, you got to kill the root of it. You got to fertilize it out. You got to dig the root of it out. If you leave some of that root, it will grow back. Sometimes it'll grow back even stronger. And see, that's what it is when bitterness is in someone's heart is that it just has infested their body, their being, like a root of a weed that just wraps around their soul. It chokes out anything else that is good that is going on in their life. And then it spreads. You then spread it to someone else. Because what is bitterness if not to be tasted by others? It's like, oh, you, you think things are bad now? You think this is, it's all like, well, why don't you try tasting that? What, what do you think this feels like? And then you spread the bitterness to others. And that's exactly what a root of bitterness does. And it causes many to become defiled. Pursue peace with all people. That's basically the opposite of what we're talking about here. Because bitterness, somebody who's bitter, doesn't, doesn't pursue peace at all. They have no peace in their life, and they're not there to make peace with anybody else. They're just there to make other people's lives miserable. So we have to instead pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No one comes to the Father unless we have set apart, set aside ourselves, set us apart from the wicked ways of the world, have, have uh, made ourselves holy as God made us to be, set apart, sanctified, so that we might enter into the presence of God. No one enters to the presence of God without those things. But bitterness drives us away from those things lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. The grace of God is abounding to all people, and God even does have grace to to those that are are embittered. But the problem is, is when you grow bitter in that way, 
I'll tell you what happens. It causes you to forget the grace of God. It causes you to despise even the grace of God. That you just, you, you, you ignore everything else around you. Because it's the grace of God that if you look around and you're like, why do I have any reason to be angry? Why do I have any reason to be bitter? God has been so gracious to all of us. I don't care if something bad happened to you. I don't care if you lost a, a, a loved one. I mean, I care in a compassionate way because I want you to feel loved and cared for. But ultimately, you should look around and say, look, if, if you have a loved one that's passed on, then man, what a blessing it was, the life that we had together, the season that I was with this friend or this person. It was good times then. And if some circumstance causes those things to change, God's grace still abounds. God is still gracious to all of us. You still have the life that you have. You still have family members. You still have others and other friends or whatever. There's other things to be joyful and to be excited about and to, to have peace and love and to share the grace of God with all others. And it's all like that is it's abounding to all. Even the circumstances that cause people to be bitter. It's not worth it if you put your focus on the grace that God has still given to you. The grace that is given to, he's given to all. And it's like, that's what it is to pursue peace with all people. Even your enemies, even the people that have turned against you. Your whole goal, again, is, is to pursue peace with them, to pursue restoration. See, that's what we all need, is we all need to be restored. We all need to come back into the covenant that we have with God. Whenever something, or, or those that have fallen away from the faith. I'll tell you something else that has caused some people to be bitter. And this is something that I've recently been encouraged in my own life and in, in my own walk. And in fact, it's just something that I think everybody thinks at some point in time, even believers. Why are there people in the world, bad people, wicked people, bitter people, why are their days prolonged? Why doesn't the Lord just, you know, bring swift judgment upon every single person that, you know, that does wrong and people's lives are, pro the wicked prolong their days? And it's like you sit here and you, you sometimes think you wrestle with or you question, you're like, Lord, why do you allow those things to happen? Those things to continue to uh, uh, fill the earth. Why, why, why do you allow those things to happen? Well, if you had your way, you'd be like, all right, that person's wicked, so we judge them, and that person's wicked, and I'll judge them. And as soon as I know that somebody is wicked, I'm going to lay down judgment. That's what we would do if we were God. It's a good thing we're not God. Because I'll tell you what God has. God has an abundance of patience. He has an unlimited supply of patience that we just simply cannot relate to. And every single wicked person that continues to live their life is another day that they could repent. Never think about it that way. But that's what God sees. God in his infinite amount of patience sees those who have sinned and those who prolong their days and all the things that happen that cause bitterness and cause anger and cause sadness in the world. Every new day where God's mercies are new each day, every new day is an opportunity for that sinner to repent of their sins. And when one sinner repents of his sins, all of heaven rejoices. That's what God's waiting for. That's the reason why their days are prolonged. So that there might come a day when restoration is had, when restoration and peace can be had with all. Man, that's, that takes a, a different kind of being, a different level of patience, a God level of patience for you to see the world that way. That's what I hope that I encourage you to see the world that way. 
Once again, there's not a reason to be bitter. There's not a reason to be bitter or angry with the way things go on in the world, where people wrong others and other people sin and wickedness abounds. But if you take a step back and you think about it, it's all about the grace of God. It's all about His mercies that are new each day. That each day, each passing day, and each prolonged life is all leading toward and is a path and a potential restored soul is a potential sinner who has repented and turned to the Lord. That's what we should pray for every day, for those things for those things to come about very soon. We pray often, it's all like, Lord, please come soon and clean up this mess. How about we change the prayer to be, Lord, may, may it be soon that this, all the sinners and wicked ones repent and turn their lives over to you. That's what is actually possible and capable, especially if you go and are, are the hands and feet of God here on earth, sharing the gospel to the people who need to hear it. That's what our prayer should be. And once again, the grace of God and the pursuing of peace and the things of His Spirit should outweigh any root of bitterness that we might have. Our God is so good. Our, our Messiah takes, is such, takes such good care of us. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, take us to John chapter 10, where uh, in our Torah portion, I should say, um, there is one of those hidden uh, scribal marks of the Torah portions uh, there at the end of um, chapter, near the end of chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, um, where it says that uh, God will cast the children of Israel into a faraway land from their rebellion, that there's an enlarged Hebrew letter Lamed in the middle of that word where he says he will cast them out, uh, that Hebrew word being shalach. And so that enlarged Lamed points us to the word picture that is the Hebrew letter Lamed, which is a shepherd's staff. And the shepherd's staff is the thing that causes all of the people of the world to be brought back into the covenant of God. And it's, of course, the Messiah and the testimony of the Messiah that brings us all together, where the Messiah himself called himself the good shepherd. Let me read here. Um, let's begin at verse, uh, let's go ahead and begin at verse 1 of John chapter 10, and let's read uh, this passage. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by the name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Yeshua used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Yeshua said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. 
The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep have come... uh, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the famous passage where the Messiah is describing himself as the good shepherd, one who would lay down his life. And this goes back to the whole idea of being in covenant with God. The fact that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, the fact that they know him by his voice, that they do not follow strangers, but they follow the leading of the shepherd that calls them and knows them by name. Ultimately, that's what each and every one of us have in our relationship with the Lord. The Lord, if we have that covenant relationship, then when he calls upon us, When he does something that's in our life, we recognize that it is a move of the Lord. It is a move of the good shepherd if we feel called and led. And however, if somebody else calls or some other thing or circumstance, you know, is trying to lead us to do one thing or another or do something different, well, the Messiah here says that's the work of a stranger. That's the work of a thief or a robber, somebody that's trying to take us away from where we belong. This is back to that thing about bitterness. That's what sometimes the person who is embittered is trying to scatter the flock. They're trying to gain people on their side and say, hey, if, if God has you know, dismissed us, if God's forsaken us in this way, if God has done these things and you, they're just bitter about what has happened in the course of their life, they're trying to get others on their side and it ends up just scattering a flock, scattering a congregation or a fellowship. Many of us, I'm pretty sure, are familiar with the idea of, you know, a divided congregation or a congregational split that we may have been experienced. The thing that we have to always remember is that, look, we, we, we need one shepherd that is going to be the one that's going to lead us. And that one shepherd is somebody who will do anything and everything for their flock. Now, ultimately, the Messiah is that shepherd to us. He is the one that will lay down his life. Everybody else, leaders, congregational leaders, we're all under shepherds. We're all hirelings. And there are some that do not exhibit the traits of the good shepherd, of the one that we serve. And so when a wolf comes into their midst, man, sometimes the hireling, sometimes the shepherd, the under shepherd is the first to flee. They're like, no, that's not my problem. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with the wolf that's coming into our midst. And yet there they come. He flees and everything and the sheep just gets scattered. And that people don't truly care for others, pursuing love, pursuing peace, truly willing to lay down their life for another. And that's ultimately, we need to see the example of the Messiah and what he is trying to say to what he was trying to teach them and what he's trying to teach us. Ultimately, that he is truly the good shepherd, the only one worth following. The only one, ultimately, that we are in submission to. No matter what happens in the course of our life, no matter where we have been scattered to, as we are the fulfillment of prophecies of old, being scattered into the nations, He is the one who will draw us back. He is the one, by His word, His testimony, by His disciples, He will bring us back into the fold. 
Just like he said at the very end where he says, there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. And there are those who are in the world that he's desiring to all bring in to his flock. Now, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of people. Think about this. How many people who will be in the kingdom are here on the earth today, scattered into the nations, and how many of them are still yet to hear the gospel, but in the kingdom, they'll be there. There's probably, there's no way to know that. But think about the, the infinite possibilities of all the people scattered across the globe and what the testimony of Messiah, the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, can be, do and bring to, a peop, to those people wherever they might be. They need to hear that message so that they will be in the kingdom. It might be their destiny. It might be the will of God and the hope of all of us for all of them to come and to be in the kingdom, for all of them to repent of their sins. We need to bring that message, that message of the good shepherd, to the people where it will speak to them, where it will minister to them, and where they will recognize the covenant that they have with the creator of heaven and earth to identify with spiritual Israel, to teach them about the ways of the book, the ways of the children of Israel, and that the promises and the covenant and the commandments that were given to us in the Old Testament are for all people and for all of Israel, adopted into the, into the faith and brought into the, sheep, the fold of the sheep and the flock of God. We need to bring that message. That's ultimately what we need to do. Now I want to go to Romans chapter 9, because this is another connection directly to our, uh, where the New Testament quotes our Torah portion here. Because in our Torah portion, we have the, in uh, chapter 30, we have the very um, solid teaching foundation of our, of our faith, of those that need to return to obey the voice of God that he sets before us, life and death, blessing and curse, asking us to choose life. And the whole thing about making the choice of life versus death or blessing versus curse is a very simple choice because the word of God, the faith that we have in God is very near to us. So if we go to Romans chapter nine, this is where we can read um, about this um, uh, about these various uh, instructions and exactly the Apostle Paul. Uh, teaching us this, that pretty much the entire purpose of the commandments of God, the entire purpose of the, of the Lord coming to the Messiah coming to teach, and also he, what he was mainly fighting against is Gentiles coming into the faith. All people. Once again, I've been talking about how, how many people are going to be in the kingdom. How many people need to hear the gospel message? There's a lot of people out there. And guess what? They're all of the nations. They're all Gentiles. They're, all, they're not native-born of Israel. But they have the potential to be adopted into Israel. So that's what a lot of Paul's teachings have to do, have to do with. So let's begin with Romans chapter 9 at verse 30, where it says this. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, this is native-born, as he's talking about here, pursuing the law of righteousness have not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they not, did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes believes on him will not be put to shame. 
Chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ, Messiah, is the end of the law properly translated, is the goal or the aim or the purpose of law for the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things and shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the essence of the gospel message and the desire of all of God, all of and of the Messiah, for all of Israel to be saved, for all people to be saved. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile or wherever you're from, but all come into the faith. And what is it that we can go and we can say to, to certain people? The faith that we have, the faith that we can have in the relationship and the covenant that we have with God is not hard. It is not so far away that you have to traverse some great, you know, length and uh, uh, distance to go and get to a certain place to then receive that covenant and that measure of faith. This is what we teach, the, the, the fact that in the absence of a temple in Jerusalem, we don't tell people and say, well, you're not saved unless you get to Jerusalem and you go make your confession to a priest there, and only then are you then going to be saved. Or you have to go to a certain church or a certain place or talk to a certain person, and only then are you going to then be saved. And too many uh, religions, denominations, put some sort of stipulation on whether you are saved. You have to believe exactly this one, or do this one thing, do this one right, this one action, this one ceremony, and only then are you saved. When really we all know, and all of us who have come to faith in God, know it is much simpler than that. It is that we have made the confession with our mouth that we have sinned, and we repent of those sins. We make that confession, and we then make the confession and believe and declare that Yeshua is Lord, Jesus in Lord is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead. And that is how we have received salvation. It wasn't about some sort of ceremony or, 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 or temple rite or some sort of thing we had to do. It was, always, it was always so very near to us. It was only just a breath away. It's within your heart. It's within anyone's capacity to do so. 
People have made that confession just through prayer, just through speaking to somebody. We take the, you can take the Bible and the word of the law and, and the word of the Scripture, and people have made confession without the Scripture right in front of us. It is so very near to you, you don't even have to reach for the Bible that is on your nightstand. But it is right there present in your heart. It's always been there. And see, that's the thing that we can say to one another. That's what we can say in the speaking and the teaching of the gospel. That the word of God, the confession of faith, the, the, the power of God is so very close and near to it. All you have to do is make the one simple choice. Life or death, blessing or curse. Which do you choose? And there's evangelists who have come and who have used that, who have said these exact same things so that we might come in to faith. That might be as simple as it was how you were saved. Many of us, uh, there's a lot of people that were saved when we were young, when we were children, and we made that confession. And just because we were young and the confession was so very simple or the prayer was very simple, does that somehow negate the relationship that we have with God because it was such a simple step and a process to get there? Absolutely not. That's the, that's the very foundation of everyone who has come into faith. That we might have the faith like a child who simply turns to our Heavenly Father and asks for forgiveness and asks for the love and the compassion that only He can share and only He can provide. That's how all come into the faith. And He is very, very near to us. And it's sometimes that simplest of prayers that can negate a lifetime of bitterness a lifetime of anger, a lifetime of hurts. Sometimes the simplest of prayers with just a single tear coming out of your eye, making such a confession. And the word of God and the relationship and the covenant with God was there very near to you and he was there the whole time. That's why somebody who comes into faith later in life, who spent a lifetime of, of doing whatever, walking, not walking in, in faith or believing in God, and then they come into faith later on in life, that's how powerful God is, that just that simple confession can, can just suddenly wipe away an entire lifetime of bitterness and anger and mistakes and sin. That's what we're all hoping for. That's what we, and that's what we can share and provide to others. So I pray that this, once again, is a way that we can share the gospel message with one another. If you need to reaffirm your faith, you say that per simple prayer. You're, the Word of God, your faith is very near to you. It's in your heart. It's just one breath away to speak and to lift up your voice to the Lord, to your Heavenly Father, who's been there the entire time. I pray that any bitterness that you might have in your life would be washed away by the compassion, the grace, and the mercies of God that are new each and every day. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to dig into your word. Father, I pray that you would just heal us, Lord. Heal our hearts, heal our minds, cast away any anxiety, depression, fear, bitterness that we have in the course of our lives, Father. I pray that you would melt those things away, Father, by just the power and the sound and the saying of your name, Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whatever it might be, whatever language one speaks, Father, I pray that you would just cast away the ways of the world, the ways of the wicked, Father, and that we would just be filled with your word and full faith and right, your righteousness, Lord. May we commit our lives in the service and the building of your kingdom. May we keep your commandments, your teachings, and your instructions. And Father, may we make whatever confessions need to be made. And Father, may we be your hands and feet here on earth and share your word and that gospel to the people who need to hear it. 
Father, I pray that we would pursue peace with all. Father, I pray that you would knit together families, communities, friendships, relationships, Father. And that, Father, as we just continue to seek and to pursue your righteousness through the course of our life, be with us each and every day. Cause us to let the ways of the world roll off of our backs, Father. And Father, I pray that there not be any root of bitterness that springs up in the midst of your people. We worship you, bless you, praise you, and thank you. We thank you for all of these things. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.